May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Glad you're here on this Trinity Sunday. Um, someone once told me that preachers have one sermon, only one sermon, and um, everything else is commentary. Mine is our big idea for today that we are reconciled with the Father through the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. You've probably never heard me say that before. But it is more or less a confessional summary of the faith of the gospel. I don't think there's anything more important than that. Everything we do follows from that. Being reconciled with the Father through the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think that's especially appropriate for today, which is Trinity Sunday. Um, what we find out is that being religious is not the same as being a Christian. It's true for Nicodemus, and it's also true for us. I want to talk to you this morning about Nicodemus's visit to Jesus. Um, I said last week, it reminded you that Anglicanism is three streams. It's sacrament, scripture, and spirit. Last week, Pentecost was spirit, more of the charismatic side. And today, it's scripture, more evangelical. Uh, by the time we're done, you're probably going to think you're over at First Baptist this morning, but you're not. You're here. So the subtitle of this is Nick at Night. <laughs> Kathy's apologizing over there. Uh, Nicodemus, he was a, his name means conqueror of the people, conqueror of people. Pharisee. Uh, there, there were never more than, say, 6,000 of, these, of, these, of this group, the Pharisees. There were lay people who were um, fanatical about adhering to the law. They, were, they came about between the period of the end of the prophets and coming of John the Baptist. That 400-year period saw, saw the creation uh, and formation of, of the Pharisees. Um, he was wealthy, and we know this. From John 19, and we also, let's see, this is after the crucifixion. It says, after this, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who had, first, who had at first come to him by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred weight. Very, very, very expensive items. And so Nicodemus is a, is a man of, of wealth. Um, a lot of times we think, a lot of people think that getting rich, um, getting wealthy in certain worldly ways is the, is the road to peace and contentment and happiness and fulfillment, right? Remember, Two years ago, Kathy was down at Bellevue High School and doing the senior projects. I was in Honduras, was there, and probably saw about 10 projects. And every single one of these high school seniors was saying, all I care about is making the most money as, soon as, as fast as I can. That was what they wanted. I want to make the most money as fast as I can, as if that was the road to happiness, success, and fulfillment. And when you get there, it's, it's, you wonder, is this really all there is? Now, I found out something this week that I thought was interesting. What do Angelina Jolie, Jeff Bridges, and Matt Damon have in common? None of them can find their Oscar. 
They don't know where their Oscar is. They've misplaced it. And you would think that the pinnacle of an acting career, an Oscar, would have a place of prominence in your home. Yeah, it used to be around here. I don't know what, I, what did I do with that. I don't really remember. And it just really struck me as I thought about this, what's important. And they just don't know where that is. Maybe it wasn't as much as they thought it was. Or maybe it wasn't as important as they thought it was. He was also respected. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. Um, the Sanhedrin was a combination of the Senate and the Supreme Court. Um, it, it, was, it was made up of 70 men. Uh, it was the ruling body for every Jew in the world. And Nicodemus is a member of this group. This is the group that finally, ultimately condemned Jesus to death. He was religious. He was a Pharisee. Um, he was religious to a degree that we really can't imagine these days. The scribes were the ones who worked out the regulations and the Pharisees kept them. Um, the only way to God in their mind was by keeping the law. And here's what the Pharisees believed. They believed that the kingdom of God would come when all Israel obeyed the law for one day. If everyone in Israel obeyed all the laws for one day, the kingdom of God would come. Totally external. It's all up to me whether or not the kingdom of God is going to become a reality. William Barclay puts it like this. He says, you may... says, the kind of thing the Pharisees did was this. To tie a knot on the Sabbath was to work, but a knot had to be defined. The following are the knots, the making of which renders a man guilty. The knot of camel drivers and that of sailors, of course, as one, and, as one is, and as one is guilty by reason of tying them, so also untying them. On the other hand, knots which could be tied or untied with one hand were quite legal. Further, a woman may tie up a slit in her shift and the strings of her cap and those of her girdle, the strap of shoes or sandals or of skins of wine and oil. Now see what happens. Suppose a man wished to let down a bucket into a well to draw water on the Sabbath day. He could not tie a rope to it, for a knot on a rope was illegal on the Sabbath. But he could tie it to a woman's girdle and let it down, for a knot in a girdle was quite legal. That was the kind of thing which to, to which the scribes and Pharisees was a matter of life and death. That was religion that to them was pleasing and serving God. A woman was not allowed to look into a mirror on the Sabbath because she might see a gray hair and be tempted to pull it out, which would be work on the Sabbath and a violation of the law. If you had a sore throat, one of the remedies was vinegar. On the Sabbath, you could drink the vinegar, but you could not gargle the vinegar because gargling was work. You could actually eat an egg that was laid by a chicken on the Sabbath as long as you killed the chicken the next day for having violated the Sabbath, having worked in slaying the egg. This is how they lived their lives. I mean, can you imagine? Am I in the right place? Am I saying the right thing? Am I doing the right thing? Have I got the right clothes? Have I got the right... What am I... I mean, you go crazy. But this is how they live their lives, and this is how they thought that you came closer and closer to God. The problem is that 
that all of our achievements or our adherence to laws do not change who we are, and we are sinners in need of a Savior. So Nicodemus comes by night, and he comes by night either for one of two reasons, the commentators think, either out of caution. I read that thing from Je uh, about Joseph of Arimathea. He was a disciple of Jesus, but nobody knew it for fear of the Jews, and maybe Nicodemus didn't want anybody to know he was coming. Or it was also a time when you could have more time with someone was after the day was over. So it might have been that. Nicodemus comes and he knows that Jesus is special. He says no one can do the, the signs that you do unless God is with him. But the question is why and how. Jesus doesn't have a diploma. He didn't sit at the feet of Gamaliel or some other respected rabbi. He's an outsider. He's not part of the establishment. I mean, for crying out loud, he's a Galilean. What did Philip say? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Galilean, what a hick. They hated him because he did not follow their traditions, and he also associated with people that they considered to be wicked and outside of the realm of God. Nicodemus going to Jesus to talk about these things would be like the head of the American Medical Association going to get medical advice from an orderly. It would be like Michael Jordan coming to me to get tips on basketball. It would be, it would be like the Pope asking Martin Luther for some theological insights. Not going to happen. And here is Nicodemus, a respected member of the Sanhedrin, going to this outsider. Jesus tells Nicodemus he must be born again, he must be born anew, he must be born from above to enter the kingdom of God. This is not Baptist, it's biblical. I was raised in the Catholic Church all the way through high school. I never heard this. Kathy was raised in the Episcopal Church all the way through high school and never heard this. What I heard about was being good. I heard about the church and I heard about being good. But I never really heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is experienced by rebirth. So Nicodemus is absolutely incredulous. Jesus says this new birth, this new life is needed. And I also discovered that this was a term, born again, new birth, was something that was not foreign to the ears of a Jew. When a bridegroom married on his wedding day, he was said to be born again. When a king ascended the throne, he was said to be born again. When a proselyte, someone who was not born a Jew, became a Jew fully through circumcision and, and baptism, he was said to be born again. But this was different. This had to do with entrance into the kingdom of God, and Nicodemus thought he would have a seat on the 50-yard line. He was already in, but Jesus is telling him, not so fast. Entrance into the kingdom of God is not about church membership. It's not about baptism. It's not about first communion. It's not about confirmation. It's not about your giving record or Sunday school attendance or a life of personal morality. Nicodemus had all these things down cold, but he found out that they were not enough. He was missing it. Those things are good. 
but they don't reconcile us with God. When I do that three-person demonstration up here and I say that all your good works are like filthy rags in the sight of a holy and righteous God, that's what those things are. Confirmation and baptism and prayers and Bible study and all those wonderful things. If you think that's going to make you right with God, they just fall at your feet as filthy rags. So it's not about adherence to religious rules or the accident of birth that gets us there, but a new birth. Paul puts it this way in Titus. He saved us, let's see. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by men and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of deeds done by us in righteousness, but by in virtue of his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal in the Holy Spirit, which he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Repentance, I always say it's, I, I used to say, it's, and it is, it's a turning around. But in a, in a larger sense, repentance means it's a new way of thinking. It's a new way of seeing the world. It's not just saying, I'm sorry for my sins and then moving on. It's a whole new way of dealing with life. And my relationship with God and my relationship with others and my relationship with myself, it's different than it used to be because now I'm a spirit-filled follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and it makes all the difference in the world. And those who are born again and practice the truth love the light and those who are unrighteous hate the light. If you really are following after Jesus Christ, you want to be in the light. You want to be a person of truth. You want to be someone that people can trust and believe. And if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, it's not the way you are. And that's sad. In verse 16, the most famous verse in Scripture, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the end that all that believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. It says God loved. He didn't hate. He loved. And he loved the the world, and in John's, in John's lectionary, the world is cosmos, those who do not know or love God, the unlovable ones. God so loved the unlovable ones that he gave. He wasn't forced to do this. He gave his son, the greatest gift he had, that whoever means anyone. You didn't need a pedigree. didn't need to be part of a certain group. Even the thief on the cross someone who would live the life worthy of crucifixion. When he closed his eyes here, he opened his eyes with Jesus in paradise. I tell you the truth, this day you will be with me in paradise. Because the thief had said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He put his faith in Jesus Christ, but lived a life worthy of crucifixion. And as far as I know, he wasn't baptized. Just saying. Baptism is important. It has its own meaning. That's a whole other day. But it's not salvific in and of itself. He who believes, full faith in him. It's not about religion. It's not about good works. And there's no mention of the sacraments. 
for salvation. I remember being in a church once at a funeral, and the priest said um, that, that this person was baptized and took the sacraments. She's good to go. Well, that's not it. This whole understanding of coming to faith in Jesus Christ, repenting and realizing I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, and you're it. That's what matters. Shall not perish, meaning separated from God for eternity, but shall have eternal life, life with God for eternity. You're different in many ways. Eternal life really begins when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Eternal life doesn't, it's not some later time, it's now. I am now living in eternal life because my life, this earthly life of mine will end, but my life with God will never end because I'm going to heaven. And it's not because I'm so wonderful, it's because he's so wonderful that he loved me enough to give me that gift. Some people are trapped. They're trapped in bitterness or addiction or sinful habits or willful unbelief, even sometimes blissful ignorance. I'll get around to that one of these days, but right now I'm busy with life, my family, my work, my health, my finances. But I'll take, I, I, I'll have time for that. Don't worry. I'll get to that. I'll get to that. Well, maybe you will and maybe you won't because everybody's got a date. Your name is on a date, and that's not changing. And when your date shows up, just got a friend of mine, Andy Doan. He's the rector down at Solid Rock in Winter Haven. Got a text from him yesterday. His 57-year-old um, worship leader uh, died in his sleep. 57 years old. Gone. Boom. What? Very unexpected. But that was his date. We don't know when we're going to die. We don't know how much time we have. Billy Graham, now you're really going to think you're at First Baptist. Um, you may be saying at this point, I'd like this kind of personal relationship with Christ, but I don't know where to begin. What should I do? So a long time ago, Billy Graham wrote a little track called Four Steps to Peace with God. These four steps summarize how a person can be born again. Step one, God loves you and wants to know you, wants you to know him. The most famous verse in the Bible comes from Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus. John 3.16 tells us that God offers eternal life to anyone who believes in Jesus Christ. God makes the same offer to you that he makes to the entire world. He truly wants you to be forgiven and to spend eternity with him in heaven. Step two, your problem is sin, which separates you from God. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That simply means that no one is perfect because all of us have sinned in thought, word, and deed. Do you know how many sins it takes to send you to hell? Just one. And most of us can take care of that first sin before we even get out of bed in the morning. Step three, God's remedy for your sin is the cross of Christ. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Like his death on the cross, Jesus Christ took your place, died the death you should have died, and paid the penalty for all your sins. And step four, your response is to trust Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. 1 John 5.13 says that you can know you have eternal life through believing in Christ. 
Salvation depends on trusting Jesus Christ. It's more than just believing facts about Jesus. To trust in Christ means to com rely completely upon him. Trust is what you do when you fly in a plane. You trust the pilot to get you back down on the ground safely. You trust the doctor when you take the medicine that he or she prescribes. You trust the lawyer when you let them represent you in court. God says that when you trust Jesus Christ in that same way, you are saved from your sins. All you have to do is trust Jesus completely, and you can be saved. And when you're born again, your sins are forgiven by God. You have a new life in Christ. You never face God's judgment. You're, you're declared not guilty, and you're going to heaven when you die. This is God's hope for the world. It's God's hope for all of us because we're reconciled with the Father through the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? So if we could stand... Chains are gone.
God loved us all this much. Amen. Let us affirm our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Let us pray for the church and for the world responding. Hear our prayer. Almighty God, guide and strengthen, we pray, Justin, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Bishop Vitalis, Bishop Peter, Jerry, our uh, prefect, and our clergy, Don, Tom, Brian, John, Shirley, Karen, and Peg. Lord, in your mercy. Bless, guide, and strengthen, O Lord, the young people of this parish. Bless Matthew, our youth minister, and Sarah, our children's minister. Lord, in your mercy. Lord, we ask you to bless your blessings on the music ministry of this parish. Bless Brian, Carolyn, Joel, and Margaret as they lead this vital means of worship. Lord, in your mercy. Bless the vestry as they fulfill their duties in an effort to guide Christ the King in a godly and fruitful and faithful manner. Lord, in your mercy. We pray for America's judges at every level that they would execute their duties in a godly manner. Lord, in your mercy. Grant your wisdom and discernment to all those who serve our country and community. For Joseph, our president, Kamala, Kamala our vice president, Rick and Marco, our senators, Ron, our governor, Neil, Kate, and Daniel, our congressman, Jeff, our country commission chair, Kent, our mayor, Diane, our superintendent of schools, Justin, the president of the city council, and Bethany, our Grace Christian School Head. Lord, in your mercy. Father, bless the, Christian, the American Christian Academy in San Pedro Sula, Honduras, and the work that they do for your kingdom. Lord, in your mercy. 
Almighty Father, we ask you to guide and bless the members of the armed forces and their families. Bless our military leaders with wisdom and discernment as they deal with the emerging threats around the world. Lord, in your mercy. We pray for those dealing with the outbreak of the coronavirus worldwide and ask that their efforts would be successful in stopping the spread of the virus and limiting the loss of life. Lord, in your mercy. Comfort and heal all those who suffer in body, mind, or spirit. We pray especially for those who are in the hospital repeating their full names. Gretchen Cannon, Sandra Pippen. We claim for them the wholeness, which is a promise of God's kingdom. Lord, in your mercy. We also bless your holy name for all of your servants who have departed from this life in your faith and fear. That your will for them will be fulfilled. And we pray that we may share with all of your saints in your eternal kingdom. Lord, in your mercy. As we approach a time of confession, please review your week. Let us confess our sins against God and our neighbor. Most merciful God. We confess we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Almighty God, have mercy on you. Forgive you all your sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen you in all goodness, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep you in eternal life. May the peace of the Lord be always with you.